ancient technology, and now we're having trouble with this, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> this actually has like wheel brakes on it, which work really good unless you try it on laminated wood. So I don't know how you're feeling today, um, but my guess would be a little tired, um, perhaps a little let down, uh, maybe a slight sense of uh, guilty delight that the season is finally over. Um, the shopping is done, and you're grateful for that, unless you're one of those people who has to use your gift cards on sale items. We'll pray for you. The gatherings have kind of subsided. The presents are all unwrapped, and some of the toys that the children got are already so yesterday, they're looking for something new to play with. We have to admit, probably, that the Sunday after Christmas is a little bit of a letdown. Um, staff people get tired, they make mistakes in worship on Sunday morning. We lose our focus. I did notice that the choir was a little bit bigger on Thursday night than it was today. We had a stage full of an orchestra on Thursday night, not so much today. Um, you know, we have everything kind of in place, but it's just a little bit of a letdown. It's hard. And to be honest with you, as a person who's worked in the church for his entire uh, professional career, um, you get to a point after Christmas and you're kind of going, really, we have another one of these to do? You have to kind of muster all your spiritual resources, and maybe the best thing that could happen is you have to really drop to your knees and rely on God to lead you and guide you. I had someone say to me this week when I mentioned that, hey, we have a service on Sunday, they go, uh, why would you go to church on Sunday? I was just there Thursday. That is inspiring for a pastor. <laughs> Becky's comment was, well, you're paid to be there, okay? So. Now, my sense, however, is that Mary and Joseph might have felt a lot the same way that we do today. There's a sense of relief, a sense of exhaustion, a sense of a need for some recovery time. I mean, after all, their lives have been quite a whirlwind, right? Since this angel came to visit Mary and told her about what was going to happen with this uh, impregnation by the Holy Spirit and a baby going to be born, and it was going to be the great Messiah as promised by God. And there's, that sounds all great to us unless you're this young teenage girl who has to endure all the ridicule of your neighbors and friends and family, beginning with your fiancé who you tell who doesn't believe you at all and has to be convinced by an angel himself. Which tells me that Mary and Joseph probably were not that well received following this pregnancy as they lived out their life in Nazareth every day. The neighbors all whispered behind their back. Although some weren't that polite, they would just say things derogatorily to their faces, as some people can do. They weren't welcome in the religious community because they were considered to be unclean. They had done something that they shouldn't have done against God's law. And therefore, they weren't really welcome within the synagogue. It had been a kind of a crazy nine months for Mary and Joseph, capped off by this demand that they take a trip by foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem to pay this new tax that had been imposed by Caesar Augustus. Mary and Joseph, maybe like you and I, are probably ready for a little normalcy in their life. Back to the routine. Regular eating, regular sleeping, not as many people to go see, not as many stuff to do. And it's interesting that Mary and Joseph found their normalcy within the religious rituals that they had to fulfill. Their faith provided a sense of normalcy for them. 
There were requirements that they had to fulfill. 40 days following the birth of a child, a woman had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and be part of a purification rite. It was also required that your firstborn male child be consecrated to the Lord and to his service. And Mary and Joseph, being devout Jews, wanted to fulfill that law, right? I mean, when the angel came to Mary, what did she say? I'm a servant of the Lord. So what do you expect to do? Not obey these laws that have been a part of her life uh, forever? And Joseph was a man of integrity and great obedience when the angel came to him as well. And so it's only fitting that they would follow through with these kind of obligations. But I find that rather astounding. Their situation being ostracized from the church, criticized by their neighbors, not welcomed by religious leaders, didn't put them in such a great mood or attitude toward the synagogue, it would seem to me. People were mean to them, people that they'd worshipped with their whole lives, people who knew them well enough to know that this couldn't be what they thought it might be, but it was in their minds. They were judged and pushed away and isolated. It had to be painful to be told that you weren't welcome in your worshiping community because of what you had done. And yet here are Mary and Joseph participating in the religious rites of their faith as if nothing had happened. They were being obedient in spite of their circumstances and their treatment. Now obedience isn't our strong suit. Not the most popular word that we use in contemporary culture and even in the contemporary church. I mean, after all, we reason. Jesus emphasized grace and gave us freedom. And so we're pretty much free to do whatever we want. And if it doesn't work out or if somehow we violate God's law in that process, it's okay because God's grace, his unmerited favor will cover that for us and we'll be welcomed into God's presence no matter what we've done. Truly, we believe that there's nothing that we can do turn God against us because his love is unconditional. In the Old Testament, you obeyed the law of God to earn God's favor. You worshiped, you gave your alms, you did all of the obedient things to all the religious laws so that God would love you. And grace has turned all of that completely upside down. It does give us freedom from the law. We engage in spiritual practices like worship and study and prayer and in fellowship and all the other things that we do as a way of saying to God, thank you for all that you've done for me. I know that I am simply a piece of clay and that you are the potter and so I'm going to put myself in your presence on a regular basis so that I can become who you want me to be and do what you want me to do. But if we were treated by a religious community the way that Mary and Joseph were treated, my guess would be that we would find another religious community to be a part of. And there's always one down the street somewhere. If there's something that we don't like or something said that, isn't, that doesn't really suit our needs or some practice that has gone away that we really cherish, we find some place else to go. Now this cleansing requirement that Mary would have to go to the temple and be made pure again after birth is really kind of odd for us. But in the ancient Jewish faith, there are all sorts of things that could make you unclean. If you read through the book of Leviticus, there's a whole long laundry list of stuff that is unclean that Jewish people should not be a part of. And giving birth 
although you couldn't avoid it, meant that you had to go through this cleansing ritual 40 days after. And some, um, some people kind of project that, that Joseph went along, they went, it says they went, Joseph went along because if he assisted in the birthing process in this stable, and I don't think anybody else did, then he too was unclean and had to be somehow purified. And so they went to the temple to fulfill this requirement. This is the very thing that Jesus was always accused of, right? If you hung out with the wrong kind of people, you became unclean. And so tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves, these were not the kind of people that a religious leader would hang out with because they could make you unclean because of their uncleanness. Just affiliating with the wrong people could make you unclean. Eating the wrong kinds of food could make you unclean. Participating in certain just ritual acts of everyday living could make you unclean. And so you'd have to go through various kinds of, of, kind of uh, purification rites to re-engage with God again. A pure heart is one that is loyal to God and not soiled by other priorities. This is the way the psalmist put it. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord... And who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who can really be intimate with God? Who can connect with God? Who has the right to do that? The one who has clean hands, who follows these laws and rituals, and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol. In other words, doesn't put anything else ahead of God in their life. Or swear by a false god. Now, this purification right in the temple, of course, was symbolic. But like other symbolic rites in the Bible, it had a profound impact on one's heart and mind. The two sacraments that we celebrate in our church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are symbolic. We call them signs and seals, right? They in and of themselves don't do much for us, but within the context of the body of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, baptism marks a child as God's own child. This is God's covenant placed upon you. And a covenant has been made between you and God and your family and God to raise those children, those infants, as we baptize them, to come to know Jesus. And some could say, well, it's just water. What does that hold for you? Well, if you ask parents who have their children baptized, you understand the power of that sacrament. Because you try to live into the promises that you made on that morning when you stood on the platform wherever you did that with your kids. And every day, that is with you. It's our responsibility to help this child come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we take grape juice from the jewel and bread that we found at the jewel as well off a shelf, and we cut it up like you would in your own kitchen. And then we put it here before you, either in trays or however we do it, and we celebrate this sacrament and that bread and that juice is common and ordinary, somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit has an extraordinary impact on our life to represent the body and the blood of Christ that we shed on our behalf for the full remission of all of our sins. And in some way that I can't explain to you because it's a great mystery, nurtures and empowers us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be every day. And we believe those things as truly truly as Mary and Joseph believed that they needed this purification right to solidify their relationship with God. Now, purification for us is as important as it was for those in the Old Testament. A pure heart is our desire as well. The New Testament writes about it frequently. Christ followers are fully aware that we 
need to connect with God and to connect with God the best. We have a pure heart, a pure mind. And, and all of us know that, that, that we really don't. But all of us, also we realize that we can't purify in our own hearts or our own minds. We can't do it by ourselves. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, such a high priest is the one who meets our need. A high priest allows us to be in the presence of God and purifies us. One who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. I don't know about you, that sounds like Jesus to me. So you and I can't purify our own hearts or make ourselves acceptable in God's presence. But Christ has done that on our behalf. And so we are made pure through the person of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Jesus is our high priest. We rely on him for our purity. And our need for purity is as prominent as it was for Mary and Joseph. To attain intimacy with God, we need to bow before him and ask him to purify our hearts. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And it's interesting that even in the Old Testament, the prayer is what? Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Not let me create a clean heart. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Cleanse me, O Lord. And let me connect with God. Now the second reason that Mary and Joseph went to the temple was to consecrate their newborn son. And as it was stated in the scripture, it's customary for the firstborn male to be consecrated to the Lord's service. And it didn't mean that every Jewish firstborn male would become a priest in the temple. It simply meant that whatever they did would be consecrated to the Lord, whether they were a baker or a blacksmith or a shepherd or a farmer or a horn maker or a, a, a carpenter. You did it for the Lord. Whatever you did, you did to the Lord. And that concept of consecration is the same concept that we modern Christians have when we talk about vocation, which is sometimes lost in contemporary society. No one in this room has a job. No one in this room has a profession. If you are a Christ follower, we have a vocation. We are called by God and gifted by God to do whatever it is we are doing in the name of the Lord. So in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. So no matter what you do, retiree, homemaker, engineer, whatever it is, we do it under the Lord. We're simply representing God wherever he puts us in that place. It isn't like Pastor Greg and I are the two that have the vocation. The rest of you just kind of follow along. In fact, it's easier for us to fulfill that because that's expected of us. It's a little bit harder for you. But that's what God has planned for us in life is that everything that we do, we represent Jesus Christ. Now, I know that during this Christmas season, we always have college students home and worshiping with us, which is great to see and to have. And I think this is an important thing for college students and high school students to understand and to know and to, to commit themselves to, and that is this idea of vocation. Many of you are studying to be, you know, engineers or doctors or teachers or musicians, or maybe you want to be entertainers, or maybe you want to go into nursing, or maybe you want to do something odd for people who are from the Christian Reformed Church and like pick up garbage. I don't know. But no matter what you do, no matter what you're studying for, 
You're called by God to do it and to represent him wherever he places you. It's a vocation. Which takes us to the doves, the animals of Advent. Now, the law actually required lambs and doves as sacrifices. But to many, the cost of the lamb was prohibitive. People couldn't afford it. Mary and Joseph, earthly parents of Jesus, took two doves to the temple to sacrifice. They were the cheapest animal that you could buy that was acceptable as a sacrifice in the temple. So you might say, well, two doves, Mary and Joseph, okay, what does that mean? It, it exhibits the poverty of the earthly parents of Jesus. Jesus didn't come from privilege. He didn't come from honor. His parents didn't have it all made. He didn't have a trust fund. His parents were dirt poor. And they scraped together whatever they had to buy two doves to fulfill the sacrificial requirement so they could consecrate their firstborn son to service of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but apparently two doves works. Jesus did a pretty good job of consecrating his life to service of the Lord. But it says something about Mary and Joseph, and it says something to us about what kinds of things that we can do as we give to the Lord as well. Every week when we worship together, we reenact this tradition. We give of our symbolic gifts to the Lord, and everybody can participate from children, and they are downstairs right now. They have an offering every day in their children's worship service, and they give that money, and they support a child overseas with what's given. Everybody can participate. I mean, Jesus told a story about observing a worship service one day, and there were, you know, a, a wide variety of people in worship like there are here today. And, and, and somehow he observed that, you know, some guy took a gigantic stock, stack of money out of his safe, and he put it in the offering plate, and people were going, ooh, man, that's awesome. Look at how much he gave. And some senior citizen, she waddled to the front of the sanctuary and dropped in a mite smallest amount of money that was available at the time. And Jesus said, that woman, that woman is the example of what it means to give. Because what she gave meant that she had nothing left to live on. That guy who took that stack of money out of his safe, he had more of it in his safe. Now he isn't passing a judgment on rich or poor, he's just saying everybody can participate and whatever we give, we give sacrificially. It's a symbol that we trust the Lord for what we're given. And that God doesn't make judgments about who gives what. But everybody gives something. These animals of Advent remind us that everybody can contribute. The wealthy and the poor, the strong and the weak, the talented and the ordinary, the powerful and the humble. Every one of us has something that we can contribute I mean, if God's parents felt the need, who are we not to feel the need to contribute as well in some way, shape, or form? Mary and Joseph were not having the best religious experience of their life. The faith community that they had been a part of had stiff-armed them. Then no one really wanted to understand or believe them. They had every right to be bitter or angry or frustrated. They could have chosen to ignore the religious obligations that they had. 
But obedience to God was a priority for them rather than their own personal feelings. And they were committed to be God's source of shining light and living water no matter what other people did or said about them or to them. You know, and that's a great thing for us to think about on the last Sunday of the year. I mean, Christmas is over. And our minds are always starting to turn to the next year. It's a season of goal setting and resolutions, and, and I believe in goal setting. I mean, I, you know, it's not, that, it's not rocket science, okay? If you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. Think about that. You've got to have a goal. Where are we headed, right? So people who, uh, who work with me and have seen this little diagram before, everywhere I go, I use it. It's not that big. It's not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen, nor is it great artwork. It's me. So this is how you do a goal setting chart. Very simple. If you have a small goal, big goal, you can do what, what do you want to accomplish today? Your goal would be here, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's my current reality, here's where I am right now. I gotta take five steps to get there. So for me, what I want to accomplish today is take a nap. <laughs> I gotta go home, eat, change my clothes, and take a nap. Steps to get there, right? So, if we are becoming more and more like Jesus, right? Our goal, as God's people, will be at some point to be like Jesus. And all of us have a current reality, that's an R, that is somewhere different on this line, right? Some of us are here, 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 some of us are here. You evaluate yourself, put yourself wherever you are. But I'm making an assumption. The assumption is that if we're here this morning, we want to be more like Jesus by this time next year. Amen? Amen. All right. So all of us are somewhere on this chart. So all this line, you just add some lines for your strategic plan. What are you going to do to become more like Jesus? And you all have to have a strategic plan. It's not, you know, you can't just say, we're not that good, right? So, you know, maybe you start with spiritual disciplines. I'm going to worship more often with a community of people and maybe even worship more often on my own. I'm going to find a place to serve. I'm going to spend more time reading the Word. I'm going to uh, somehow do something else that works in my way to, uh, to offer. I'm going to join a small group, be part of a community, whatever the case might be. All of those things are ways that we become more like Jesus. Now, you've heard this before and you'll hear it again today because we forget. The two most important catalysts for spiritual growth in your life are scripture reading and serving. If you want to accelerate this process to become more like Jesus, you'd find some kind of Bible plan that would help you read the scriptures more often, and you'd find a place to serve. Now isn't that interesting? Jesus was the Word. And the Word was God, the Word was with him. Jesus is the Word. So you spend more time in the Word, you'll become more like Jesus. And Jesus was the ultimate servant. When you serve, you become more like God. And other things are important too. And so it's simply a matter over the next few days of kind of making this assessment. Where am I in my current reality? How close am I to becoming more and more like Jesus? And what's the pathway I'm going to take to do that? And all of us are in a different spot. There's all sorts of opportunities that we offer at church. There's all sorts of other ways that you can do things to become more like Christ. 
And as you and I become more like Christ, two things will automatically happen at Elmer's Christian Reformed Church. We will become God's source of shining light and living water. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, your great gift to us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. No matter how many times we have celebrated Christmas, we, we can't get over the awe and the power and the wonder of that great gift that you've given to us. And so, O oh Lord, as we live out the rest of this year, these next few days, and turn the page afresh to a new year, let your Holy Spirit come within us to show us what we need to do and show us how we can become more and more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so this is the time for us to reenact what Joseph and Mary did in Jerusalem that day by giving of our tithes and our offerings. Um, those of you who worship with us regularly know that we've been kind of giving you a, yearly up, a weekly update on where we are. We are in toward the budget. We're inching closer and closer. Uh, I think, you know, it's right. We didn't count Christmas Eve yet. Uh, I don't know what the problem is with our business people, where they were on Christmas Day, but they weren't here counting. Uh, but we need another $275,000 uh, to make it by the end of the year. You've been great. You've been extremely generous. I believe we can do this. We can push to the end. And so um, let's worship now with our tithes and offerings and be as generous as God has been to us. Thank you. 